Welcome. At this time, our children's church is dismissed to their classes. You can go out the back, uh, junior high uh, to my left, and uh, our elementary school to the rear. This morning's scripture reading is found in uh, Revelation chapter 7, but before I um, have us stand and read that together, let me just uh, make two comments. One is that if you were driving in today from uh, the freeway side, you'll recognize the little farmhouse that used to serve as our park training tutoring center um, is being dismantled. Uh, it was no longer safe for occupancy, and it had become kind of a center for some activity that wasn't good. So you're going to see that thing taken down, and we're grateful for that. Um, and those portables that you see stacked up are going to be put down on the ground as our temporary new house for our tutoring center. The second thing is to say that you're probably looking at me right now, especially if you're on live stream and up close to say, does Dan have a Band-Aid on his head? Uh, yes, um, I had a klutzy moment and um, my head lost the fight, but there are no uh, concussion or no stitches, just abrasions. This is the one time I wish I had hair, just to cover things up, but I don't. So it is what it is. I hope that it will not be a distraction because I really believe that the message this morning from Revelation chapter 7 is an important one for us and I want you to focus on it, not on me. So. With that said, if you wouldn't mind standing or remain standing in honor of the reading of God's word, this is the text of this morning's ref, uh, message, Revelation chapter 7 in its entirety. John writes, after this, and I think after this means the sequence of visions, not historical chronology, he says, after this, that is the vision before, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard a number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Je Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming up out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness and mercy and love. We will never understand the extent or depth or height of your love that rescued sinners to make them sons, saints before you forever and ever. Father, we come to this text this morning as your people, asking you to speak to us afresh through these old but living words. I pray, Lord, that you would enable our hearts to live by faith and not by sight, not by what we read in the newspaper or what we see in the world around us, but remember that that your word is the determining factor in this world, and we are to let it be a lamp unto our feet and guide us. We pray that you'd set our, our sights on the on the city of God whose architect and founder is God himself, that we would make this journey through this world in a way that is both faithful and trusting of your grace, your sovereignty, and your goodness, looking to the great outcome of our faith, and that is the salvation of our, our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, families are good for a lot of things, but they are definitely good for three things, loving you, shaping your life, and embarrassing you. Am I correct? Embarrassing you, like when your mother shows up to pick you up from high school with her curlers on. Good moments. Case in point, we took a group of people in 2012 to, uh, to two countries, to Jordan and to Israel from Parkway. And some of you may have been part of that trip. And my extended family decided that they wanted to go on this trip too. So we took my father and my mother my sister, a nephew, and a niece with Parkway family. That's always a dangerous thing, to bring your family that knows all the stories and dirt about you, you know, with your church family onto the same bus for days after days. But we did. And one of the things you need to know about my father is that he is the slowest picture taker ever. Uh, and that's, I kid you not, he is the slowest picture taker ever. My siblings to this day, together, my sister's, I think, 61, and I'm 50, almost 54, and my little sister's in her late 40s. No, she just turned 50. Wow, we're all getting old. Um, and we still talk to this day about how, how slow he is. You know, he had this mechanical or manual camera, and then he had this state-of-the-art, though vintage now, light meter, and he'd tell us all to get in a line. We'd get in a line, and we'd wait. And he'd fuss with his camera, take out his lighting meter, and fuss with his camera. Meanwhile, we're just sitting there. We felt like he had us line up on Monday to take a picture on Tuesday. That's, that's how slow he is. And if you know him, you know that's true. I am not exaggerating. You can ask any one of my sisters. They'll say, yeah, Dad is a really slow camera picture taker. And embarrasses us all the time. Well, take a guy who has this uh, marathon-esque approach to photography and take him to a pilgrimage place like Israel where there's picture opportunities everywhere. Right? And you kind of get the idea of what 
what happened. Well, as the, the leader of the group, you know, it was my responsibility to make sure everybody was on the bus. And so we leave the hotel 8, 8.30, 9 in the morning, and we get board the bus. And my first task was to go from front to back and to count. One, two, three, four, five, 19. Everybody's here. There was 19 in the group that particular time in 2012. And then the same thing through the day as we, like, finish a site like um, Caesarea Philippi or some site in Jerusalem. As people are getting on the bus, I'm like, one, two, three, four, five, you know, 19. Everybody's here. But there are a couple times when I only got to 18. One time in particular I won't forget is, uh, and, and uh, by the way, we love my dad, <laughs> was we're getting ready to take the cable car down from Masada. It's a big, long cable ride. And so I'm counting people before they get on the cable car, and I only reached 18. I'm like, all right, who's not here? Who do you think it was? <laughs> my dad. I'm like, I had to go back up through the ruins and find him. I'm like, Dad, everybody's waiting for you. I'm the pastor of this church. You can't just, like, take pictures, like, an hour after everybody wants to leave. And uh, that happened a couple times. Um, it was embarrassing, but, you know, we love my dad. He was a good spirit about the whole thing. Why did I count? Because as a leader, I felt it was my responsibility to make sure everything was, every, everyone was on board, taken care of, didn't want to leave anybody behind. I would have felt horrible if we would have ended up back at the hotel and we'd realize one person's not there. It's like a, as a mo father or mother, when you get in the car after church, you want to make sure your kids are all there, right? Now, I only have three kids, but some of you had a lot more kids, and I've known people over the years who have left their kids at church only to find out, oh, my goodness, we left our child at church alone. Right? It's a horrible feeling because you know as a leader, you are supposed to, you are responsible for those under your charge. The reason I counted was for the well-being and the safeguard of those under my protection, at least my leadership. The reason I say that is because numbers factor into this chapter. 12,000, 12,000, 144,000. And then a multitude that no one could number. That, that is the idea of numbering is central to this, this chapter in Revelation. And this is where we're at. We are in chapter 7 in what is um, an interlude like a, just a pause and a break between the sixth and seventh seal of the scroll. So we're in this interlude where John has a two-part vision of the people of God, one that centers on the people of God as the sons of Israel or the tribes of Israel, and the second part as the great multitude or the nations. So Israel and the nations are the two parts of this vision of chapter 7. But if you remember, the end of the sixth seal, or the end of chapter 6, ended with a question. The sixth seal was the arrival of the wrath of the Lamb and of the wrath of God. It had arrived. The whole sky being rolled up like a scroll and so forth. And the question asked at the end of chapter 6 is this. The people on earth who have rebelled against God cry out, fall on us, speaking to the, the rocks and the hills, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, and here is the question, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? That's a question. 
a question that I think we as believers would want to ask us. Who can stand underneath the weight of these judgments? Who survives? Who is preserved through all of the persecutions and, and difficulties and challenges and so forth? I believe chapter 7 is an answer to that question. Who can stand? Who can stand? And now we get to see two pictures of people who are able to stand. The first in the form of the people of Israel, the second in the form of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So I want to explore this in two parts uh, because I believe they both teach complementary truths about who stands and who we are. The first one has to do with this vision of the people of Israel or the 144,000 that are sealed. And I believe that equates to the sovereign ownership and preservation. So here you have this again described. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea. That is, you have these mighty angels that basically are holding back the hurricane forces of judgment. And here's this other angel comes and says, not yet. In other words, it's here, but... Don't let the wind harm the earth until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. We must first seal God's servants before you let the eschatological winds of wrath blow. Now, some have equated these four winds with the four horsemen, and that may be correct. What is in view that I think is unmistakable is that this is judgment, the four winds of judgment, and here are these angels holding everything back until, until the servants of God who serve him are sealed. Now, that may seem strange to us, I suppose, uh, sealed on the forehead. If you think literally, then it will seem strange. But if you think figuratively, then it will not seem strange. This, I believe, this, this sealing of the servants is an echo or a restatement of a judgment that happened in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. And this is another judgment passage, a judgment passage on Jerusalem back in the day for their idolatry and their rebellion against God, something that has been historically already worked out. You read in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 and following, it says, And the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to him, Pass through the city. And this is kind of an uh, uh, arbiter of judgment that's doing this. The Lord says to this arbiter of judgment, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan under all the abominations that are committed in it. A.K.A. they're sighing under the weight of evil. They don't like it. That is, this is the heart of a righteous person who sorrows, feels a sorrow, a burden over the sinfulness around them. That is, these are the righteous ones. These are the ones that follow the Lord, the one that have a relationship with the Lord, that want to be in covenant with God. They're sighing as a sign of their faith. And they receive a mark on their foreheads, not a literal one. There's no evidence whatsoever that this is a literal mark, but it was a, a way of God saying, this is mine. He follows me, trusts me. And to the others, verse 5. The ones without the mark, without the, on the forehead. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after them and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall not show pity. So here in this Ezekiel passage, we're confronted with the fact that God has placed a mark on the faithful. 
figuratively speaking, and they are spared, they are preserved, they're protected. Whereas those without the mark, that is those who have given themselves over to the abominations, that is living however they wish outside of God's law and covenant, well, they're struck down. That's Ezekiel, and Revelation uses a lot of Ezekiel, and he's saying the same thing. It's like, before, in a matter of speaking, all hell breaks loose. I am going to seal my people, a sign of preservation, of protection. I will see them through it. Even if they're facing persecution at the expense of their own life, I will preserve their faith to the end. That's the sense of this. That God is not going to abandon his people. He is going to preserve them. And in times of difficulty and darkness, God's people need to know that God has me. He's counted. One, two, three, 144,000, they're all here. <laughs> they're all here. It's a sign of preservation. 144,000, a number. What does this mean but that God counts his people? Is it to be taken literally? Oh, by the way, I should stop and say I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, but in chapter 13 of Revelation, we see another identifying mark on the foreheads of those who are showing loyalty and allegiance to the beast. The number is 666. If this particular mark in chapter 7 is not to be taken literally, then I question whether it should be a literal one in chapter 13. That is, throughout the book of Revelation, you find these mirror images of each other. An unholy trio like the Trinity and a holy trio, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And here you have God's mark on his people saying, these are mine. And others who take a mark of a different sort, who are willing to worship the worldly powers that be. That is the point being, you're either on one side or the other. You're either marked out as part of the kingdom of light, or you're marked out as part of the kingdom of darkness. And when someone responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ, guess what happens? You change sides. And when you do, God marks you with the seal. If you are a person who trusts in Christ, has sworn allegiance and faith in him, and if receive the, the benefits of the cross and have the Spirit of God in your life, then I want to say you are, in fact, sealed. You will be preserved and protected. As I said, I think the numbers here are, are figurative. Um, most, if not all, of the numbers here in Revelation are, are figurative. All the sevens and the seven horns and the 144,000, 12 squared, you know. That number will come up again, by the way, at the end of the book of Revelation, 144, in relation to the wholeness or the totality of God's people. So I believe that's what's in view. It's like God's basically saying in this passage to his church, I have a number for you. And you know what? That number, we're told in chapter 14, verse 1, and this is pretty remarkable in my opinion. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144 who, hold, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. God has designated you mine. He writes his own name on you. It's like Toy Story, you know, Andy on a shoe of Woody. Mine. I'm Andy's toy. Well, we are his, marked with his name. And therein lies our confidence, church, as we find ourselves facing challenges and storms and hurricanes and difficulties and 
disappointments is to know I have a king who knows my number and counts every time I get on the bus. Not going to leave me behind. Now, the question is, of course, that you're probably thinking is, well, who are these 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel? Some have taken this literally. Is it like at some future date, a, a mass conversion of Jewish people is going to come in uh, into Christ, 12,000 from each and every tribe, and then they're going to go about um, evangelizing the people during this seven years of tribulation. There are, of course, some anomalies in this list when compared to the Old Testament lists of the tribes. For example, the tribe Dan is missing. Like, why do you leave out Dan? I take that personally. <laughs> it's just not there. Instead, Manasseh's placed, uh, who isn't necessarily part of the original 12. Well, that's just one piece. Let me, let me offer you a different interpretation. It's not mine alone. It's shared by many. That what's in view here with the 144,000 is nothing less than the totality of all of God's people. That is the church. That all of these 12 tribes, with 12,000 each, is a representation of the entire completed people of God. That is, you and I are part of it. Sealed by him, and therefore protected and preserved. Now let me give you some reasons behind that. One is that if this is in fact supposed to be taken literally, then it would mean absolutely nothing to the first century church other than a mere prediction. This is something reserved for a special group of people. Not the first century, not us, it's, it's later. So it just simply wouldn't apply to the first century church, yet the whole thing was written to the church. That's how it opens up. That's how it closes. This was for the church. This is for us. And if this, th th this does not apply to us, well then, it really has no formative meaning, motivation, because you're not one of them. Second, it is the pattern within this apocalyptic book for Don John to hear one thing and then to look and see another. But in fact, it's not another. It's part of the same. Just different lenses by which to look at the same thing. So, for example, chapter 5 of Revelation. Verse 5, John hears this. It says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That is, he hears that verbally. A lion. Then he turns and he looks and he sees something different but the same. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So he hears about a lion, turns and sees a lamb. It's not as if they're different things. They're different images for the same thing. And that works its way through this, this book. It's, it's hearing something and then it, it's clarified by what's then seen. So when we get to this passage in Revelation 7, we see the same pattern. And I heard verbally the number of sealed, 144,000 sealed, every tribe of the sons of Israel. Then he sees, and what does he see? He says, and this, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. So he hears about Israel, and then he turns and sees the church. That is, he is using Old Testament descriptions to describe the New Testament people of God. 
That's reason number two. Reason number three. The Apostle John has already recalibrated his thinking in terms of categories. Like the, the first century church really wrestled with the question, who are the people of God? Do you have to be circumcised and become a Jew to be a, a part of God's people? And Paul wrote over and over, no. That's to revert to an old system. This is a new system. It's a new day. And actually, those who have faith of Abraham actually belong to Abraham. In other words, you're more Jewish by your faith in Jesus than if you have the genetics of the Jewish line. And they had to recalibrate their thinking along these lines to say, listen, it's our faith in Christ through the gospel that makes us part of the people of God. And outside of that, there are no people of God. So Paul would write, for example, Galatians, just as the recalibration. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He goes on a little farther in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, to refer the church as the Israel of God. You see, there has been a recalibration. What does it mean to be a part of the people of God? What does it mean to be a part of true Israel? What it means to have faith in Jesus? And isn't this precisely what if Paul taught us in Ephesians? Is this like God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He's taken the two and made them both one. Therefore, there's no longer any difference between Jew and Gentile or slave or free or male or female. It's a new game. So you see, there's a recalibration in the New Testament as to who are the people of God. We can be called the true Jews. We can be called the new Israel. That's not to exclude the tribes of believers who are Jewish. They're part of the whole. And then you come to the revelation itself of John. And you realize he's already recalibrated his thinking. So twice he mentions this in his letter to the churches, or I should say Jesus' letter to the churches. He writes to the to the Christians at Smyrna, and he says, Know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Historically, the Smyrna Christians were persecuted by real Jews from the synagogue. And here John is saying in no uncertain terms, but they are not. They are, in fact, representative of the synagogue of Satan who hates Christ. The calibration has already taken place. So if that's the case, you come here to chapter 7, he's talking about these 12 tribes. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about the church. The new people of God who, who have entered in through faith in Jesus Christ. And last but not least is the, is the 144 reference. As I, as I said, it's, it's referenced again in Revelation chapter 21 where there is this great city New Jerusalem, the holy city that comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And, and the measurements are 12,000 by 12,000. And the 144 are a reference to the city. And you know what that city is referred to as? Where this 144 number is used? The bride of the lamb. The bride of Christ. Hmm. Just maybe. For those four reasons... 
What we're seeing here in Revelation 7, the first part, is a message to the church, to you. You're numbered. No matter what comes, the Lord's got you. He's not going to leave a man behind. Therein lies our deepest conviction. Someone asked me last week, in reference to the week before, about the martyrs and the fact that Christianity is being all in. How can we be all in when we face such huge potential losses? And the answer is, to me, I can't do it in my own strength. I have to trust that my king has, my, has written his name on my life, paid for my salvation through the blood of his own son. I'm numbered. So he is counting. One, two, three. They're all here. Now that's powerful to me. It means something to me, and I think it's true to the intent of both the theology of the New Testament and to what John says here. So that's, that's the first picture. It's one of preservation, this numbering, and one of preservation and protection. God's got you. No one left behind. No one left behind. But the way these fit together, though, is if the first picture refers to those who are entering into time of great tribulation, which begin with the four horsemen and so forth, then the vision that comes after of the great multitude are those who come out of it. We're looking at a, two different pictures of before and after. Before and after. Verses 1 through 9, before. God's going to seal them, protect them, preserve them. They're his. He doesn't let kids go. He will leave the 99 to find the one. Then it switches. Now what he sees is the victory of those who have persevered, that God has preserved. This is a picture of victory. Sovereign victory and reward of God's people who have persevered because he has been faithful to them, faithful to us. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. This is the great grand people of God gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and the Lamb. clothed in white robes with palm branches of victory in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God. Remember the question of the end of chapter, chapter 6? Who can stand before the throne, before the Lamb? People who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb can stand. Isn't that good? Those whose lives have been paid for by the cross of crucifixion and cross of Jesus Christ are standing before the throne and for the Lamb washed and purified. Not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done in Christ on their behalf. The victory comes from the cross. The victory comes from the blood of the Lamb that enables God's people to stand. We are not supposed to fear these unfolding judgments. Why? We've been sealed. We've been washed where his, our, his name is written over us. And then it, he finishes this out. In verse 15, he says, Therefore, and I, I, I taught last week that each time you get to the end of the sequence of seven, you're coming to the end of the story, where judgment is finally passed and then victory is rewarded. 
Well, this is the end of the story for Christians. Is already here before the seventh seal is, is, is the new creation. Look, look what it says. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And again, these are images. It's not meant to convey that we stand there for all eternity. We're going to have meaningful jobs and responsibilities in the new creation. But if you continue on, it says, um, to serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall thirst any more. And then verse 17, look at this. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Guess where that's from? Revelation 21, at the end of the story. To him who thirsts, he will receive water from the spring of life without payment. That he, that is God, will wipe away every tears from their eyes. That's the end of the story brought forward. That is the victory, church. And I'm so glad that he wrote it this way because if I had to endure 13 chapters of dark judgment, I think our church would disappear if I preached through all of that. Instead, he keeps weaving the end, the victory moment, the cheer, all the way through so that we might understand we have nothing to fear and everything to gain. We are preserved and protected, and we trust God for that. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel that we're looking forward to, and it's not here. It's not now. It's coming, and we are on the journey there. They, they say that um, my family line, the Deckard brothers, came over in the late 1700s. They left Europe, boarded a wooden ship to leave behind a war-torn Europe where there was often tyranny in search of a new world. And I often wonder what it would have been like to be one of those original Deckard brothers and to know that you're leaving almost everything behind but a few essentials and boarding a wooden ship to cross a dangerous and dark ocean in hopes of a new world. That is a that is a decision of decisions to board a ship, a wooden ship. And there's no stopping points. There's no off-ramps. You capsize at sea, you're done. Whether you knew it or not, when you came to Christ, when you professed faith in him and he filled you with his spirit and you recognized you were forgiven and accepted, you boarded a ship. And that ship has been crossing the dark waters of history since the beginning. And it keeps picking people up. Our trust at the end of the day is not in the wood of the ship. It's in the God who preserves the ship. Through the darkness, through the dark times of your life and mine, through the challenges, political or personal, knowing that at some point, you know, we're going to look off into the horizon and we're going to see the shore of a new creation where he will, in fact, wipe away every tear from our eyes and, and he will do away with death forevermore, the death of death, and we will see his face. Church, this is the grand hope that we have to keep our eyes on. Otherwise, if we allow our, our, our vision to dip down into the present realities of life, which are so sordid and changing and violent, you will lose hope. So here you have in these two visions some, some amazing motivators. God is a preserving influence in your life. He has written your name. You were numbered, and this is where he's taking us. And someday, the boat 
will find shore and harbor in the new creation. That is our hope. So as you, we're going to celebrate communion, but I wanted to kind of celebrate it in a way that maybe ties to this text, and that is to come remembering that you have been marked off. Remember in Exodus when they took the blood and put it on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over? Well, you have been marked if you're a believer. You've been marked with the blood of Christ, and you have nothing to fear. And I want you to remember that, that God is the one who preserves your life, not you ultimately. And he's got you, and he's paid for this. So as you take it, do so with thanksgiving, but also hope. Because someday we're going to drink it anew with him in his father's kingdom. And that will be the wonderful end and yet the beginning of eternity in our future. So most of you know how this works. We have like quite an assortment up here. If you're better off doing the to-go, like just grab it and go, we have them in the center. There is gluten-free and regular. Um, and then if you want to do it more traditional style, there will be, Adam's going to join me up here with his mask, and we'll put on our gloves, and we'll break bread with you if you'd like to do it that way. Um, this is for the followers of Jesus. This is a reminder that he has written his name on us. Um, and as you do, confess your sin to him, knowing that, you know, there's not a week that goes by that we do not sin, and we need to be reminded that we're completely and fully forgiven, and, and then aim with our lives to honor him and learn what it means to repent and obey let me read this, and then I'm going to have Adam come up, and we're just going to invite you to come up, and you can take it back to your, your seat. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke and gave to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Come as you're ready.